and welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, the sound of your city run by the indomitable Ken Stower. As we, uh, Ken Stower is a good man, don't give me that look. Ken Stower is a wonderful man. And uh, we're still running programming over here. Uh, this is the Green Majority. I'm David Hostetter with Stefan Hostetter. How you doing? We are without Saren Kaster until the final segment today. Yes. Uh, they will be coming in uh, at the end there because we are recording from my bedroom right right now uh, because uh, U of T campus therefore the CIUT radio community community radio station has been shut down as has most everything else uh, in the midst of this global pandemic or the word global is actually redundant when saying the word pandemic, because pandemic means global. Yeah, well, I did not know that. That's I, I learned something already. That's what I was told. Oh, there you go. And uh, it's rather drastic, so we're just going to take this extremely slowly. Not because we don't have content, but because we are chilling out. And uh, we are going to start talking at the beginning about this COVID thing, because it is an environmental issue a community issue and a social issue. And I'll just uh, list, uh, uh, as of now, actually this is going to change constantly, so I don't know why I'm listing this now, because well, this is pre-recorded. Well, I know, I mentioned that in, in my bit, yeah. Okay, well, as of um, as of uh, midweek, uh, there were 218,000 confirmed cases worldwide, 8,900 8, total deceased from the COVID-19 6,900 total serious cases and 83,000 recovered and 147 countries now have the, uh, have the virus circulating within them. And uh, I will just quote uh, briefly, since this is an environmental show, Sonia Shaw, who was recently on Democracy Now!, was talking about uh, the environmental pressures that give birth uh, to things like this. Um, so she says that over the past 50 years, we've had over 300 new pathogens, uh, either kind of newly emerge that never have been seen before, or come into new places where they've never been before. This novel coronavirus is just one of a whole spate of other pathogens we've seen, uh, Ebola in West Africa, where it had been seen before, never been seen before, Zika in the Americas, where it had never been seen before, new kinds of tick-borne diseases, new kinds of mosquito-borne diseases, new kinds of highly drug-resistant bacterial pathogens. And we know that about 60% of these new pathogens originate in the bodies of animals. About 70% of them are in wild animals. But it's not because wild animals are particularly infested. It's because of the way humans and wildlife are coming into novel, intimate contact, and that is because of human activities. And uh, that was from Sonia Shaw, who was recently on Democracy Now! Uh, and just to give a brief uh, indication of the scale, of the, of, the, of the speed at which the scale has gone up in terms of our response, on March 11th, Trudeau was promising $1 billion COVID package. Just seven days later, he is now promising $82 billion in economic supports and so forth. And, uh, yeah. So Stefan is going to begin for us with, uh, with a thing about uh, community and COVID and environmental 
degradation. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Dave. The this is uh, every once in a while we have a show where it feels weird to be an environment show uh, because so much because something else so drastic is happening. You know, we have a show mm-hmm. where it it you you sort of don't feel like you're set up to to do what the world needs, I guess. And so and so I'd say the show is our attempt to to match what the world needs uh, or, or or try to marry what we are able to do with with what we can with what the what the show is uh, able to provide people and what the world um, exists around us. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know what I need. So, yeah, well, it's, I, don't, I don't think anyone does. I think that's the that's the key here. And so the the structure for the show, just so we will know, is we're, we, yeah, we're talking about this. We're going to. Change on to some sort of more positive, a few couple of positive stories about about the environment. Uh, we'll get into then the middle segment will be your sort of usual fare of of news about you know climate change and how it's all going to kill us. And then we'll get to the end of the show where Saren has, uh, has 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 brought together some pieces about the universal basic income and some other thoughts. And so it's gonna we're gonna move around a fair amount uh, this episode, and I I just hope that you all bear with us. Um, because I think it's safe to say that we are in unprecedented and uncharted territory. Uh, that and that whatever the world would look like on the other side of this will be fundamentally altered. For now, the questions we must ask ourselves uh, are: How do we get through it? But we cannot allow the question of what should come next to slip too far from our minds, because when we get through it how we get through it, sorry, will influence what comes next. As a content note, uh, this information was true of Wednesday, March 18th, but with nearly every part of the world acting as shifting sand beneath our feet, I expect some of the numbers to be wrong by the time you listen to this. So with that said, here's a small snapshot uh, of what the world looks like right now. The and I, I should say, as a as a quick aside, the the amount of which I feel like it almost seems like I want to laugh at the version of me last Friday who who, tr- who thought the world was crumbling and the world we use with now is probably similar to how I feel oh, I'll feel about the version of me speaking now next week. But anyways, the snapshot: uh, the price uh, of the benchmark blend of crude produced from the tar sands right now is seven dollars and forty seven cents, meaning that nearly every barrel. Of, it, of of produced will be sold at a loss. Seven dollars. Seven dollars and forty seven cents. Uh, every yeah. Um, and this is a this is again. It is oil right now is one fifth of Canadian exports, and every barrel will be sold at a loss. Uh, air quality has been improving across the globe due to the virus related shutdowns, though China is expected to relax environmental regulations in order to ramp back up its its factories again and so we can't expect that to last too long uh layoffs are rocking the most precarious workers and governments are scrambling to ensure folks can meet their basic necessities as you mentioned earlier dave the federal government announced 82 billion dollars today uh including emergency programs for those laid off and self and self-employed but there are fears in regards to how quickly it'll be available and all the folks who might get missed the stock market has now lost nearly a third of its value in the past month, meaning that it almost sits almost exactly where it did four years ago. 
uh, undoing almost any of the growth that we saw during, which was, you know, as many people had pointed out, somewhat of a bit of a fake growth. But anyways, because he was still not helped by those who were homeless. But mm-hmm. uh, still, losing a third of its value in a, mo- in a month is unprecedented, except in a few moments. Uh, the waters in Venice have turned blue uh, as the lack of boat traffic has allowed sediment to settle. Mm. People are actually saying that people originally thought this was about uh, lack of pollution, but no, the, the, the water actually remains just as polluted as possible. The air might be a little less polluted, but the, the blueness comes from the fact that the sediments are no longer being kicked up. Spain has nationalized uh, its private hospitals, and Mitt Romney is supporting a temporary universal basic income. And that, uh, and the impetus of this all, the COVID-19 virus is inching closer to 220,000 people worldwide, and the number will almost certainly be much higher by the time this airs. Quite simply, we live in a world of immense uncertainty. Comparable situations are nearly non-existent, and we can expect the fallout to be immense. And so with that backdrop, where do we focus now? Both for ourselves and both both for ourselves now and for our collective future. To me, the answer to that question is community care. Just about everywhere you look, we are finding examples of people creating spaces and opportunities to care for their communities, from apartment buildings to act to activist groups to entire cities. People are coming together to ensure that those in need get the support they require. And I mentioned last week on the show that the shutdown of events were most beautifully seen as actions of solidarity to the healthcare workers who are bracing for the influx of new patients. And what we see now as a society-wide shutdown of nearly everything is a mandated extension of that. Today, Finance Minister Morneau suggested in his press conference that within response, with his response to COVID-19, his, quote, only job is to make sure that Canadians can keep food in their fridge, that they can keep a roof over their heads, and that they can afford the medicine that they need, end quote. And it's my hope that we as a society could ensure that, the, that this remains his job. That in a country as wealthy as ours, that these basic necessities do not require extenuating circumstances to guarantee. We must come together as communities in this time, but also afterwards. We must use this moment as an opportunity to build stronger and more resilient and more caring structures and systems. For for the sake of ourselves and for our planet, the next few weeks and months will will be a test of of, of us all. But as we, make it, as we make it through, it can also be proof. Proof that we can live slower, more deeply rooted lives with those around us. Lives that are just as fulfilling without them being so full. Communities are resilience. Communities are meaning. And community is our future. May we embrace it now and moving forward. Hmm. And uh, <clears throat> that's amazing. So the finance minister said now that their job is to make sure people have their basic necessities. The, the, the key word there is only. Mm, that's their only job. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense because what previously would be their job? Uh, the full quote, let me see if I can actually pull it up. 
we seem to have been i mean it's agreed and it's obvious that we've been on a track for decades of finance ministers thinking that they have the ayn randian uh goal of simply making sure that capital is free yeah i think the exact quote uh was like maintaining a fiscal course or something like that um here i actually can pull it up because it uh would make sense for someone in charge of the national economy to be thinking about what that economy should be doing which is guaranteeing universal welfare well-being but he see but if 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 this is if this is thought of as an actual shift away from an old way of thinking about economics which is just to make sure that uh those confident businessmen are free to do what they will with their capital because they're creating jobs and just trusting them uh, could become something that actually makes sense and is grounded in daily reality. So did you find it? Uh, just no. I, c- I can. Um, also, I suppose it doesn't make too much sense off the beginning to have said how COVID uh, can be thought of as being as springing from human pressure on the environment because surely epidemics in the past have not necessarily sprung from human pressure on the environment. True. However, it is thought that as we do continue to degrade the global ecosystem things like this become more um, more likely yeah so I found the full quote the qu- full quote is usually my job is to maintain our fiscal track but right now as Minister of Finance my only job is to make sure that Canadians can keep food in the fridge maintain our fiscal track yeah hmm. yeah that's yeah. interesting so, so that's the, yeah. So th- there's that's the, and, and but but I think that that particular piece is, and people latched onto it, and there were a whole bunch of people sort of talking about that that one one line on Twitter because I think so many people um, are don't have those three things. You know, so many people are unable to to, and, and like you know the fact that we you know don't have a national pharmacare program at a time when, at a time when everyone is, suddenly needs particular medicines. Um, is 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 a travesty, right? Like the, the thing about this about this pandemic is it's it's it, it it is showing blatantly the 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 places where individualism uh, fail entirely to protect anyone. And it's conceivable that uh, after this thing clears up, I mean, who knows what's going to happen with the programs that are put in place to deal with it now. Well, will, those, will those then be seen as, as something that continues to be necessary? Well, I, like, and I think that's, again, I think this is a conversation that we should be continuing to have over the next few weeks because I, I, I truly think, as I said in the, in the, in the earlier, I, I think the question is, 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 A, right now the question is how we get through this. You know, how we ensure that we can flatten the curve and make sure that, that the fewest number of people um, you know, pass away due to this, due this virus and that we are, we're able to, to save as many lives as possible. But, but the, but the, but the, 
the 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 starkness of contrast that this has created for you know the fact that Spain has nationalized its private hospitals, the fact that suddenly that suddenly that everyone is looking for 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 plans and, and for government intervention to to, to step in and, and save us, you know, goes to show you that the the level of which we have individualized ourselves does not work in the face of a pandemic and will not work in the face of collective action when you need collective action you need collective systems and to me that's what this is making most clear is that that we desperately need ways to 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 work together and to to bring people together and work collectively because if we're all relying on on these major companies to 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 do things they're not going to Right there, they are. You know, these companies are are not able, even, are not set up to protect the the most vulnerable. And they could be sued for doing it by their shareholders. Well, yes, if you, yeah, if you, yes, like that. Yeah, when the way their system set up is entirely like to allow for if it's, they were it's, considered. It's yeah. illegal for a company to to attempt not to make profit. Well, not to make, yeah, yeah. If they can make a claim that yeah, that the idea was not enough for sure. But yeah, exactly. Like these are the and, the and this is the system we live in. This is the system we've built. And to me, that's the thing. That's that's what's being del- what's being laid bare here is is the system that we've built is is not one that is able and allows us to protect uh, our most vulnerable citizens or ourselves in general in the face of of mass collective action problems. And and I sincerely hope that the lesson we come out of this is that we have to find ways to build deeper communities and that we have to find ways to work together and that we have to find ways to. As a, as a, as a, not just as a, as a, as a country, but as a, as a species. Welcome back to the Green Majority on CIUT eighty nine point five FM. <clears throat> um, we are recording from uh, my bedroom, Stefan Hostetter and I. And uh, Saren will be on the show in the final segment. You would think that uh, everything being the way it is, we would have uh, nothing but time to prepare an airtight uh, listening experience for you today. But that's not the case. Uh, because uh, some of us are uh, confused, shaken. Not necessarily about what's happening. But just about the vicissitudes of life. I and think yeah, I think this is this is airtight. I'm, I'm gonna. I'm, this I'm gonna is airtight. Okay, yeah. that's what we're calling it. It's like a submarine in here. Everyone's in their own little submarine. So uh, we are going to look at a couple of positive environmental stories. Damien Carrington is reporting, well reported actually last month. Um, how Heathrow, uh, the Heathrow in the U in London, the big airport, it's a uh, third runway was actually ruled illegal uh, because of climate change. So an appeal court uh, decision to uh, allow it um, sorry, the appeals court uh, says that uh, it can't go ahead because of the Paris Agreement. It is not consistent with the Paris Agreement. So here we have a runway uh, a third runway in London being cancelled by a court because of climate change. Yeah, uh, the, and this is a 
honestly, given how much people have really re- rejected the concept of the Paris Accord, this may be the maybe its biggest success, um, or at least at least a certainly an example of some of the value. But again, not I'm not here to defend the the usefulness given the number of ways it's gone south. But but I but also I think it, what's important to note here is just the fact that. You know what's incredible is, is is that this is was a story that came out you know a month ago approximately or a little less, and and right after that uh, the entire economics of flying cratered, you know and so you know there's a there's a there's a there's a amount of which that the that flying we, like people were flying more and more and more for smaller and shorter flights in a way that was massively unsustainable. And and the fact that we needed more and more, you know, the fact that there was an increase in in airport ability like, was was really just to allow for these short term flights that people were just becoming to act as if were totally mm. normal and useful, despite their massive harm for to to the rest of the world. Yeah, that's one of the interesting things about this coronavirus crisis. It's showing us how much of our economy and how much of our lives were actually frill. Yeah, and again, I'm not going to hear to say that all flights are are frivolous for sure, but but certainly the the fact that you know the the fact that what we'd seen in the last little bit was actually an increase in flying, despite the fact that everyone had knew how harmful it was to the uh, was to to the climate, and the fact that the flights that were increasing are short are short haul flights. The, you know, the idea that you could just go from say Toronto to Montreal in an hour. Uh, those kind of things. Those things un- almost certainly are frills, right? Like the, the f- like if you are flying, you should be flying a distance that would be totally untenable to get in some other way. Yeah, and um, what's and so then the uh, UK government is not going to appeal it either, so it's done. Hmm. And what's interesting is that um, Carrington quotes a um, an international public law expert, Margaretha Werewinkie Singh. Uh, who says, quote, for the first time, a court has confirmed that the Paris Agreement temperature goal has binding effect. Um, the goal was based, um, obviously, on the overwhelming evidence about the catastrophic risk of exceeding 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming. But some have argued that it is an aspirational goal only, leaving governments free to ignore it in practice. <coughs> and uh, yet here we have a court recognizing that the Paris Agreement, at least in the UK, can be considered law. Yeah, and yeah, and uh, you know, these are the types of stories that I think, um, you as we as we move forward on in regards to how the actual responses uh, of the of the courts are going to be important in regards to the climate will continue to be important. And actually, the well, let's go to the next story. The next story is another example of courts. So let's just keep let's keep moving on. Moving on to the United States now in Oregon, uh, Democracy Now uh, reported on the 2nd of March, how climate activists won a landmark victory in Oregon um, after presenting the necessity defense. So, so this is where uh, the defendants in the case were uh, o- acquitted. Uh, they were actually Extinction Rebellion activists acquitted uh, who were blocking railroad tracks used for transporting oil. Uh, and they were acquitted because the court decided that... Um, uh, they could not be tried because they had to do it because of climate change. They're like, well, this is necessary for us to get in the way, and you can't arrest us for doing something that's necessary for 
the future of the species, essentially. Yeah, and we've covered the necessity defense a few times before, um, and it's 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 funny because it's it's worked sometimes, it hasn't worked other times, and so clearly there's like a dis- basically disagreement among judges about whether or not you can use the necessity defense mm. uh, in regards to climate change. The but the fact that each time it gets each time the fact that it gets successful is is good because that increases the chance that it becomes it, it becomes more a part of of the uh, of of what what a history a pattern of judges understanding of law is um, which becomes quite important when future judges are making calls yeah and ima- sorry. sorry imagine if it was, imagine if it became expected that uh, you could just disrupt oil infrastructure because you consider it a duty of yours well exactly and you can't be charged for that well exactly yeah it it, would, it opens it massively opens up the the possibilities of you being able to uh, you know, if, if that became the norm, then yes, that would, that would, this would be a one way in which it would almost, you, you know, it would basically allow for people to shut down a, an incredible amount of, of oil infrastructure. And, and if the courts kept saying, we're not going to prosecute for this, that would, that, like, like we talk a little about social license in, in, in occasionally here, which is sort of about the idea of what society s- decides is, is okay or not. And, and the courts would, the courts deciding this would be, basically the shift between something being social license of how much people think is okay to to true license right like this would actually be it would be such a strengthening of that of that concept that that the social license for oil and gas exploration or expansion would be uh, or even use would be would be shut down mm-hmm. um now again i am not holding my breath i would expect that this type of landmark success uh probably will will keep going back and forth and and i would not expect us that this victory to keep happening um to be honest but each time it wins is important to note and to talk about because again it it would be so monumental if it if it did change all right so shall we get into some dire climate change stuff now sure you know we've we've been we've been we've been up and down this whole whole weird show so let's carry on so um the greenland ice sheet uh, the study came out uh, recently in Nature, tracking from it its balance from 1992 to 2018. And what they discovered is that the Greenland uh, as a whole is melting at a rate closer to the higher end of warming scenario uh, pr- uh, predicted by the IPCC. Um, and the Arctic report card uh, came out for 2019 uh, a few months ago. And they said, yes, indeed, the uh, air surface temperature is still going up and is still the highest it's ever been. Uh, the minimum, the minimum ice extent is, was the second lowest on the satellite record. Uh, there was, a, there was a, a winter low in sea ice in 2019, 2018 and 2019. Birds are having trouble. Um, and there was <laughs> rapid melting, uh, reaching 95% of the surface beginning earlier than usual. So uh, I, I, this was a scientist's uh, statement that birds are getting in trouble. This was the, this was the, the scientist's quote. No, that's my, that's my, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, th- I think the, the, the warming of the, 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 man, it's so hard to switch brains, um, but what's fascinating about this, and what I think is important to constantly keep talking about this kind of thing, is the fact that 
you know, these are it's it's out of the way. You know, we we often talk about talking about birds in trouble. These are the canary. The the, our, the Arctic is the canary in the coal mine. It's the it's the fastest warming part of the planet, and so the more times that you sort of see that happen, the more the more you should be concerned. Um, and also the, the the other part about this is which I think which has been mentioned a few times in other places, but just can't can't be overstated is is imagine you know we're with with the virus that we're experiencing is a you know is, is in some ways at least currently and let's let's all be hopeful through a once in a once in a lifetime experience uh, you know it might it now with the amount of which global transport travel is occurring maybe more than that but but imagine combining that with with you know with the Australian forest fires or something. You know, like when when you like we talk about how brittle uh, the infrastructure and, and, and the society is, and and how much you need these sort of the some sort of some community response to be able to, to give it some strength. The the overlappingness of these uh, these of these disasters is what becomes truly scary. And so and so that to me is what these things are are like. They're 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 all like reminders that we're still heading down this path, and we still desperately need to find a way out of it. Um, and, uh, continuing on the models, which have been very, uh, good in predicting the amount of global warming that has happened so far, those models several months ago suddenly began predicting more warming than they ever had before. So there was originally the highest end was closing to closing to something like three. Now we're looking at three degrees Celsius by the end of the century. Now we're looking at five point uh, six, according to the highest estimate. And these are models that had previously been doing a good job of predicting warming. And now they're like, all of a sudden, they're predicting a lot more for the future. Scientists have no idea why this is. And they're just uh, collaborating and trying to figure out why they're saying this and hoping that uh, something has gone wrong. But they don't know why uh, why they've gone wrong. Or they don't know if they have gone wrong. They could be right. Well, yeah. Th- 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 there's a couple of these. This I find these things fascinating. You know, when you get so often, there's you know these these models, and they and they and you can then carry forward, and you, and you can sort of understand why, and then something goes haywire, and it's interesting that, that something has gone haywire in all of them. You know, it's not just that there's like one or two that suddenly have gone weird. In which case, you probably could then blame the, you know, some sort of part of the actual study or the model itself. But the fact that like the accumulation of data that's being put into them is is suddenly now giving you some other explanation, is is something to pay attention to, um, and. You know, not to add more fuel to the oh no, what's happening with this world fire, but this is something that is, you know, could be disastrous. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, yeah. It turns out, actually, it was a they they had been doing this for about a year, but uh, they just simply weren't contacted by journalists. Oh wow! <laughs> God. So. So someone finally went back to them and t- they're like, "Hey, a tight what's network up? of researchers that do this stuff and didn't understand what was happening." Wow. All right. And uh, uh, well, we've, we, yeah. I think we, we have a couple of abnormality stories. So let's move on to the next one. Um, so ocean currents are actually speeding up. Uh, so ocean currents are moving faster because of heat and wind. And uh, the abstract from this new uh, study in science, uh, scientific advances, science advances, 
says, quote, the increasing trend in kinetic energy is particularly prominent in the global tropical regions, reaching depths of thousands of meters. The deep-reaching acceleration of the ocean circulation is mainly induced by a planetary intensification of surface winds since the early 1990s, although possibly influenced by wind changes associated with the onset of uh, Pacific Decadal Oscillation since the 1990s. The uh, recent acceleration is far larger than that associated with natural variability, however, suggesting that it's principally part of a long-term trend. So ocean currents are simply faster than they used to be because of winds speeding up. Yeah, and there's this, this dovetails a little bit into some other stories that are not really being fully covered i think or or that we sort of that keep getting flown by and i would at some point want to get a maybe a scientist on to really talk about but the the ways in which the 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 increasing temperatures of the globe impact uh ocean currents and and jet streams the there's you know there's there's a talk there's a whole bunch of talks about 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 this in a whole bunch of ways and the ways all of those can impact things you know one of them is that you know if the if the ocean current that goes up towards uh goes up towards the uk um, which is like one of the m- one of the most important pieces that controls almost weather. If if that weakens any further, as it has been weaken as has been weakening, if it weakens to a point where it fails, the UK will suddenly become as cold as Finland, because that's where it actually is. It's it's being held, it's being warmed by the by the ocean currents, and so there's like these massive shifts that could happen uh, relatively quickly as these as these other systems keep keep changing. Mm. Um, but yeah, but then there's, there's it it just goes to speak to the I feel like the constant fact of how widespread and how different, um, you know, the world just keeps changing, um, and you know they, they say that you know with a little grain of salt because of how much the world's changed every seemingly minute of this week, but but in a grander scale the what's happening in climate is is very similar. Yeah, what we're looking at now with the COVID crisis feels sort of like a a brief potential picture of what we could be dealing with over and over again with unchecked climate change. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, a couple more things. We won't get into the, we won't get list all of the, all of the dire climate change stuff. Oh, we'll get to just so much. We'll save, we'll save, we'll save some of the, some of the fear for next week. It's just so much. Of yeah. It. Um, but, but I, I I would like to cover if we can next week some some conversation around the, around the opportunities for the Green New Deal. So maybe we can balance mm, out sure. balance that with that. So Earth had its hottest January since records began. New data is showing, and the Antarctic temperature rose above twenty degrees Celsius for the first time on record. Imagine being in Antarctica; it's twenty degrees Celsius. Uh, and a new study is predicting that warming. Uh, causing uh, acidifying oceans um, could nearly eliminate all coral reefs by 2100. <laughs> yeah. So, um, man, the 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 coral reef thing is actually is one. Uh, what? Well, I feel like I'll go back and harp on a regular point here on the coral reef thing, which I think is just important to reference, especially as we carry forward in in regards to the climate change which is that the a lot of the fear around coral reefs and what's going to kill the coral coral reefs will not be solved by a lot of the solutions that reduce warming you know when you think about all the sort of more uh geoengineering type responses 
to global warming, uh, none of them will prevent the oceans from over acidifying. And, and that is what is killing the coral reefs. So the, you know, when you hear someone trying to solve climate change with, you know, space mirrors or sulfur in the atmosphere, um, or any of the other number of ways people will talk about trying to find solutions towards, uh, geoengineering the earth into being colder, understand that that is, you know, that's, it's, it's, it's solving a part of the problem, but it's still allowing the underlying, many of the underlying pieces to, to remain. And, and so it cannot be seen as a, as a full on solution. Uh, it is unquestionably not because there are so many other pieces. The only response is to reduce atmospheric carbon. Um, and we have to find a way to do that. If you want a book recommendation, I think I would recommend right now Carl Sagan's Science as a Candle in the Dark. One of the reasons that I like it so much is that it really... It goes through how our mind was formed, and it really gave me an appreciation for my own flaws, other people's flaws, to be honest. Um, I think it made me a more rational person because I had a more clear understanding of my own and other people's limitations. Um, One of the lessons that I learned in that book was about this idea of the reptilian brain. A lot of people are familiar with that idea. Um, but basically over time, as our human brains evolved, we, you know, we had sort of very different stages essentially to our brain. And the very earliest form of that is, is I, I'm not even sure that's the correct term, but it's referred to as the, or it was referred to as the reptilian brain. But it basically that's the part of our brain that's responsible for our fight or flight response. And throughout human evolution, the reason why we you know, can't, it's not as simple as, but two of the major reasons why we ended up becoming the dominant, not just surviving, but becoming the dominant species on this planet is because of two things. We were very good at making tools because we have a lot of flaws and the tools, unlike other creatures advantages, allowed us to more flexibly adapt. So if you're, if you have a tail versus make a stick weapon, is all well and good in a certain environment, but if that environment shifts, you know, the human can just make a different tool. Uh, it takes a lot longer for the animal to like evolve a new adaptation. Um, and the other thing that kept us alive is our fight or flight response is very quick. You know, we are weak. We have had to use tools to defend ourselves and to, to help our, our weak frames and weak bodies do things. And we stayed alive and had time to develop that because we had a very quick fight or flight response, a very quick emergency decision-making system. And this is still the primary system that sort of underrides all our brains. It doesn't control it necessarily, but it sort of sits beneath it. It's a very primary function that requires to some degree practice and, you know, different people are different, but, you know, their ability to, to control it, but it can, can be controlled, but it is there. And so this leads to problems in our daily lives, such as, you know, even just like, you know, not being able to properly assess something that's not going to happen immediately following, you know, this might just have, this might even just be like drinking too much. Uh, This might be spending too much. Um, Just any time when there's like a risk reward delay 
Um, where we can be human, we can be very prone to those things. One of the reasons why loot boxes are so good at taking money from people is it's uh, it sort of obfuscates the, the the spending, right? Credit card bills and the same thing, right? All these systems are just sort of taking advantage of these sort of known flaws in the human brain. And I think to some degree, people are too proud to admit that they might have these flaws and this is how they're taken advantage of. So really, the reason I'm thinking about this is that, you know, this isn't really about a virus. It's about how fragile the system we created is. And our leaders are just idiots like us, except they're idiots like, not like us, because they don't experience our problems. Uh, you know, it's always baffled me, even since when I was young. It's like, well, how how is somebody who spends all day at the castle of a top of a hill supposed to know better than people who actually do things, what needs to be done. And as I got through my work environment, that was often my impression. Yes, you know, there's often, um, you know, a disconnect between the people at the top and what needs to be going on. And it's not to say that the leaders are always stupid, but the leaders often don't listen to the people who have the most direct experience. Doesn't mean you have to follow what they say, but you need to be, those people have the most information. The point is, is that we need to rapidly change our system we need to plan for the next thing. The next thing might not wait till the end of this thing. And it's not the type of emergency that you panic for, but it is the type of emergency that you plan for. <laughs> and that's that's the time delay problem. That's why we struggle with that so much. You know, I think the reason, you know, even conservatives now are, are talking about you have Donald Trump now proposing like basic forms, but it's all limited. If you listen to Bill Moreau today, it's all, well, okay, we're going to expand this program and expand that program and be like, look, <laughs> this has just exposed all the flaws in the system. There's, there's a scale, right? You where there's not a scale as a flat line on one end, you have perfect efficiency. And on the other end, you have perfect adaptability, perfect flexibility, economies of scale and all these things that, you know, this is how we drive costs down and don't worry, you know, this is going to be so good that it will be net, even, you know, it'll be, it'll end up being better for everyone, even if it doesn't seem like that immediately. Overall, this is best or better for everyone is because there's a maximization of efficiency, right? The, the greater good and all that, well, we just, the, the price being as low as possible is the best thing, which even if you accept that, which I think at this point we don't, but even if you, even if you accept that at face value, you have to realize that that extreme is the also the extreme abandonment of adaptability. It's also so maximum efficiency. These these maximum economies of scale are also maximum fragility. There's there is no way to separate those two things. So it's not a matter of being the opposite. It's a matter of balancing those two things. So I spent several hours today going through numbers. Um, these are from all different years. I, I didn't have the resources on my cell phone to, to do a really good job, but just for some things, just for thought. Um, these were all the most recent I could find, but just for disclosure, they might range uh, from 2010 numbers all the way up to 2019 numbers. So I'm not claiming these are all apples and apples, but just for an idea. We spend in Canada about $20 billion a year on cr criminal justice. So that's like judges, court systems, and jails. 
We spend about $15 billion a year on policing. So that's in addition to the justice system. Uh, we spend, we give about $10 billion a year in charitable giving. Um, that, those were the oldest numbers. There's very, I had very difficult time finding recent numbers on that. And we spend, this is actually the projected for next year before the emergency, um, was that we'd be spending about $90, million, sorry, $90 billion, these are all billions, uh, $90 billion on essentially the administrative state. There are about 7 million Canadians under the age of 17. There are about 30 million Canadians over the age of 18. Of those 37 million Canadians, 9.5% of them live in poverty. Poverty isn't just unfortunate. It's maintained. And there's just this assumption <laughs> that nothing can be done. That you take everything from someone and then you tell them that they're not capable of anything. The idea that we can't educate and clothe and give responsible jobs to people in exchange for just dignity and not having to go through something, just people just doing what they need to do. And it's not in a, it's not in, it's not going back to agrarian society. It's not, it's not even socialism essentially. And I don't necessarily like, I don't like that word because it complicates things, but it's not, I'm not even claiming it's the opposite, but the point is it's, Here's a good way to think about it. We keep being told that the wealth will trickle down. We know that it doesn't if you actually look at the history of things, but that's the idea, right? Don't worry, it's going to trickle down. Well, really all this is doing is legislating that. And the reason you need to do that is because a poverty class is expensive. It's cheaper to just give people food and give them a very modest place to stay than to put them on the street and then have them in a jail and then put them on the street and have them in a hospital and then put them on the street and have them cause a crime, not because they're bad people, but because they're desperate. If you're feeling isolated and scared right now, and I don't, I don't know how long I could do this. Well, you're getting, you're getting a little bit of taste of what poverty is like right now. This is what isolation of poverty is like, you know, except there is no I wonder when this will be done because there's no way out. In Ontario alone, we have over 150,000 social workers, volunteers, community organizers, and people who either work for next to nothing and spend much of their time when they are working at charities asking for money or finding ways to get away without having money. All of those people could just spend all of their time helping people. And then some of those people that would love to help people, but they can't because they don't even have any job, all those people could help people. I know some people are going to look at that or hear that and think it's just a hippie dream, but honestly, it's the idea that it's some sort of weird hippie utopian that has made no one ever actually do the math. I don't think people are ready for the idea, but I think the idea needs to be ready for when they are. And I think that's going to be sooner than we all think, because I think that our leaders will figure out eventually 
that this isn't going to go away. It's just whether or not they realize it now and invest a lot of money and time and energy and infrastructure and resources and political capital in general in trying to assure everyone that the status quo will return when it honestly can't. And that's wasting time and money and resources. So yes, it's going to be a fight. <laughs> I don't expect people to rally while all this stuff is going on. What I do need to do is we need to think about what this adjusted, rapidly adjusted world looks like. We've had rapid adjustment put on us. And what we need to do is while we're taking our safety very seriously, but also remaining calm and indoors is take an opportunity to think about what we could build when we're done. And that something doesn't have to be perfect or a utopia to be better. And you'll notice I haven't even said anything about taxing the rich yet. <laughs> I bet if I sat down with some people who were good at math and were good accountants, we could get damn close to this paying it for self for itself under normal circumstances. It wouldn't be perfect, but it would, would be damn close. I can tell you I can tell you enough from looking at the numbers that are there that it would be, you know, you would you'd be raising taxes on some very, very wealthy people. And all that would take would be the will to do so. But that was before now. I think now there will be more understanding that this is necessary. And I think now is, I think, the only time in recent history in our climate change generation that rich people have been a little bit afraid too. And that gives me hope. Because rich people being afraid means change is possible. I've been Saren Kaster. I have a pinned tweet on my Twitter, personal Twitter account. It is at Saren Summer, S-A-R-Y-N-S-U-M-M-E-R. -E you can also find me on LinkedIn at Saren Kaster, also with a pinned post. Or you'll be able to find it on the show post. I'd like you to sign and read my petition. If you hear this and you're not in Canada, I'd like you to consider copying it and making one for your country. But remember, the point is not, nobody's fighting a campaign right now. That's, that's not what this is about. This is about spreading knowledge and spreading an idea so that when we're ready to get restarted, we've got a plan. 